and welcome back to another sultry episode of DSLR Film New Podcast, where Planet Mitch joins me to discuss lots of new cameras. The pre-announcements of NAB are starting to hit the fan. We've got a lot of stuff to cover today. But first, Mitch, what have you been up to, sir? <laughs> what have you been taking Sunday, Sunday, Sunday broadcast <laughs> lesson? Working on oh, it every day. Sultry. A sultry episode of the DSLR Film New Podcast. Uh... I'm just busting my ass trying to get ready for this NAB live blog thing that we're going to do. You remember about that? Ah, yes. Tell me more, Mitch. I'm interested. I don't know. It's a live blog. It's about NAB. There's a whole bunch of people contributing. Be there, be square. Go to dslrfilmnoob.com and check out the NLB live blog. There are tons of people contributing to it. It is a great way to follow NAB, myself, Mitch, and many, 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 many other bloggers out there will be piling on to give you all the coverage that you want of NAB. And uh, that's a a lot of work, actually. Um, Trying to do it just one person by yourself is rough go because there's just so many things to see, so many little nooks and crannies. And I can't see it all, but I can go to Mitch's feed and see everything so good job on that i really like it i really enjoy it and it is something i keep up on because i want to know what to look at while i'm at nab on that and, note oh and, go ahead if you if you happen to be going to nab and you're not already signed up to be a correspondent it's simple it's not like you're writing gobs and gobs and gobs of stuff you're just writing what you would normally tweet or facebook so Send me an email at planetmitch.me.com and sign up if you're going to be there. Now, are you, you know, going to be doing any live video there, Mitch, like uh, some Periscope or something like that, or I, Meerkat? You know, I'm thinking about it. Um, I don't know how to get that into the live blog, though. I don't so either. I'm, no I, idea. I haven't tested that yet. Do you notice anything new, by the way? Yeah, you uh, you got a haircut. No, I didn't get a haircut. <laughs> Good try, though. No, I'm wearing a different set of headphones. Oh yeah, what's uh, what's the story with that? Uh, a quick story because I can't tell you a whole lot, but I'm beta testing a brand new set of headphones. They're supposed to be Bluetooth compatible, but uh, this one's not working right now, so they're gonna f- send me another set. But hmm. uh, it, they're gonna be doing a Kickstarter thing, and I, and I'll tell you right now, these are better than my Bose three hundred dollar headphones. Noise they're cancellation? Awesome. No, they're not doing noise cancellation, but. The, the frequency response and the sound is is insanely accurate. It's it's like listening to Whole New World. I can't so I'll tell you more about that when they go on Kickstarter. I personally can't handle shoving those sorts of things in my ears, so I have always stuck to the old staples here. Uh, these are a clone of Sony's very popular headphones, and these are from PreSonus, I believe. They are the PX1000s. If I'm getting that right, I might be getting that wrong. I don't know, because I can't take them off to look at them. On that note, I think it's probably time for the news. Time for the news. First thing on the list is actually for Mitch. This is uh, one of his stories, and it's really interesting. Uh, Kickstarter campaign, since we mentioned Kickstarter earlier on, uh, they're moving into some really beautiful time-lapse tools. Uh, This little guy, The View, is capable of ramping up exposure rates and doing all those hard-to-do things that make time-lapse beautiful. Mitch, you know a lot more about this than I do, so tell me about The View. This is called, actually, the time-lapse plus view. Ah, whoops. Already messed it up. No, it's okay. It's good. It's all goodness, DJ. You you did so great. Uh, doing that introduction 
make you choke on your coffee. <laughs> so, so the Time Lapse Plus was a device that was created several years ago, and a lot of people really love it. It's a great little intervalometer. Uh, but the guy who created that, and I've forgotten his name because I didn't write it down, uh, happens to have created this new product called the Time Lapse Plus View. Now, the thing that's really awesome about this is that even I should be able to operate this because it's going to automatically do the stuff that you and I normally can't figure out how to do. One of the hardest things to do in time lapse is to change the exposure. Like, for example, when you're doing an, uh, a daytime to evening to maybe a nighttime time lapse, uh, what they call ramping of the exposure, that's really hard to do. And there are some devices that do that. But the view, the time lapse plus view, is purportedly going to be able to read the previous JPEG that was shot on your camera and automatically figure out what the next exposure should be based on the results of that image. Now, I don't know all the details on how that's going to actually read the contents or the whether it's going to look at the just the exposure settings or whether it's going to look at um the what am i trying to think of the ah, forget it metadata See, maybe yeah metadata there thank you Good god i can't think today already and it's already what almost 10 o'clock in the morning and i'm still having trouble thinking well, it does look like this device plugs directly into the USB port, and on yeah. camera can cameras especially, uh, as long as you have the correct API set up, you can access all of the exposure information from the camera itself. So uh, with that in mind, they probably could simply just read the information from the camera as they take each shot and adjust accordingly, uh, either ramp up or ramp down your shutter speed or your ISO to compensate, and yeah. uh, that would make it pretty easy to do. Uh, how does this compare to traditional intervalometers, Mitch? I mean, I know it has a screen. Uh, is it going to have enough battery life to do one or two days worth of exposure? Or is there an external power for this uh, of some kind? Damn, that's a great question, DJ. I don't know the answer to that. I'm looking at the pictures here, and it sort of looks like the model they're demoing is sort of... Uh, you know, like somebody just molded together a plastic case really quick to show it off, and it's not quite the complete finished version. That's, that's correct. Okay. Uh, and 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 as Ron Risman said in the video that we have on FIT, it, it is cobbled together, and there's only one physically in existence, and he got to borrow it for a day uh, in order to shoot the video that he shot. But uh, one of the other great features is the ability to preview the time lapse while you're shooting it which is kind of awesome. I don't think any other intervalometer does that. Uh, and most bulb ramping happens, you know, sort of haphazardly. And I think most of the bulb, bulb ramping software, as they call it, is, is making some guesses. Whereas if it can actually read the previous image and uh, the, maybe the histogram or whatever they're using, uh, then this should be really cool. But to be also be able to preview the time lapse as you're shooting it is something I haven't seen anyplace else either. Now, so, what's the price on this, Mitch? Uh, I see some introductory prices of three twenty. Uh, I'm looking around. What three forty? Does that sound right? <laughs> uh, uh, 
I don't know, DJ. I actually didn't look at the price because I was like, holy crap, whatever it costs, I want it, right? Yeah, when I saw this uh, in the show notes this morning, I was like, ooh, I almost, I hovered over the buy button and then ah. I remembered that I still haven't gotten the lily yet. And so <laughs> I don't want to have too many items floating in the air that I won't receive for another year. And I'll be like, wait, what am I doing with this? Uh, plus, right now I'm in a transitional period where I don't know if I'm going to stick with Canon uh, forever. And what? If that's the case. Well, uh, uh? as you know, Mitch, I'm uh, starting to shoot more on Sony A7S Mark IIs. Uh, I still have a 6D laying around, and as you all often point out, a, a T2i body or two. Uh, but I don't know if Canon doesn't come up with a better 5D Mark IV that meets my 4K needs. I may jump ship completely, which would be well, sad. August, by the way, for that. Um, oh, tell me more. I, all I know is what Craig over at Canon Rumors says, and he thinks it's going to be august time frame this year for the announcement and, and delivery in september well i will continue to hold on to my l series lenses i think i have a dog fight going on behind me uh now next on the list here let's talk about gopro's entry into the 360 degree market and when i say entry i don't mean that they uh are just discovering that that exists because we've seen gopros in 360 degree rigs in the past but this is the first in-house 360 degree rig from GoPro. It's called the Omni. No word yet on pricing, but it takes about six cameras, uses a square configuration as opposed to those massive setups that use, I think it was 16 cameras total in a spherical pattern. Now, this cage is very similar to one that's already for sale on BH for about $500. And, you know, I don't know if this is really an innovation or not, but Mitch, what do you think? Are we going to see a ton of 360 degree cameras at NAB this year? You know, that's a dang good question. Uh, virtual reality, <laughs> golly, <laughs> I swear I warmed up my tongue before we started. Virtual reality is purportedly going to be a big thing at any beat. There's a whole section in the North Hall. Uh, by the way, speaking of that, I'm going to be on uh, my good friend, Michael Artsis, who does Be Terrific Live. I'll be on his show as well, besides Teradex, so... Tune in for me there as well. Um, <coughs> that came out of nowhere. The <laughs> virtual reality is up and coming, and therefore something like this could be used for that. Uh, I'm I'm starting to see more and more videos that are pretty cool, but I still think, to, at least to me, I mean, you've you've seen the videos where you can move your you know, you're watching on your phone or your iPad, and you can tilt and tilt and swivel, right? You've seen those. Yes, I yeah. don't know how great they are, though. I mean, there was one. Okay, there's one that's done where it's a, a performance of like a high school or middle school uh, music yeah. group, and you can yeah. spin the camera all the way around and see each of the individual uh, kids as they're playing and like uh, playing along with the song. But it all happens in real time. And I don't want to watch it 30 times to see every angle. So I miss out on some of this stuff. And I don't really want to hear that song again and again and again while I check out every single corner and detail. I could see this in a murder mystery sort of thing. But a lot of the applications I've seen so far aren't extremely compelling for myself. Uh, maybe extreme sports, watching someone jump off of a 
you know, a, a ledge or, you know, go skiing somewhere really remote or something like that? Would that be the right choice for something like this? I don't know. Um, it, it It's really interesting. And obviously, because it's new, people are still feeling out what's going on. I happened to watch one yesterday that was shot over the um, Victoria Falls in Africa, which is the highest waterfall, you know, okay. widest highest whatever and it was done by national geographic and i was i was really loving it and i was really getting pissed off at the guy who shot it or crew or whatever because they kept changing the view so they would only record like uh i don't know 10 seconds of a particular view and i'm sitting here with my phone trying to move things around you know yeah and suddenly the camera angle was on a different part of the waterfall. And then I'm like, suddenly like, Oh, well, where am I now? Right. I mean, you're, when you're, when, like, if you're, if you're at a location and you're humanly looking around, you're going to look around until you're satisfied. Right. But apparently this person was satisfied at looking at this thing for 15 seconds and then moving to something else. And I'm like, I'm still, I'm still trying to see, the backside of the waterfall and suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm shipped somewhere else. And that was very disconcerting. Well, it almost feels like you need to be able to pause it, look 360 degrees in all directions, see everything yeah. and then hit play again in order to continue with the experience, especially if they're going to cut in a 360 degree environment. Now yeah. with the capture systems, one thing I do see a, a good market for is background palettes for maybe an action adventure game. So, you know, if you use the video to capture walkthroughs in different areas, you know, you stop in a room and you interrogate a, ter- a character, or, you know, you like have a confrontation with a character, you can overlay that on top of your three-dimensional view of the room and then walk with the characters out of the room. And that way the shots are continuous, but you have action over the top of it. So in a video game aspect, it makes a lot of sense and it it's really awesome and compelling. But in a filmmaking sense... I mean, do you want to go to a movie theater and sit around with like 25 other people strapped into, you know, lazy boy recliners with these big helmets on watching, you know, three dimensional videos and spinning around? Well, the only place I've ever seen that really work is the uh, Chinese exhibition at um, Epcot. Have you ever been there? I have. It's and that was done, you know, so everybody walks in and stands in the middle of the room with railings, right? Yeah. And, and that was only a small band. That wasn't like being above and below kind of stuff. That was just done with slideshow kind of a thing around the room. <clears throat> Maybe this would be great for shooting plates for car scenes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you could look around in any direction. Maybe. Yeah. But I, I still continue to struggle to find a mainstream aspect for this sort of thing. Now, while we're talking about 360 degree cameras, I want to jump over to this and I was actually going to, I wasn't sure if we were going to cover this because I was kind of tossing it at the back end of the catalog here, but we've got this thing here and this is an announcement from Lytro that says basically they're leaving the consumer market and they're going to focus on their VR uh, adaptation of Lytro, which basically allows for 
uh, depth of field focusing post-recording in a 360-degree environment. Now, one thing I wanted to point out here, and Mitch and I were just discussing this before the show, is the old Lytro, the lipstick camera, everybody remembers getting very excited about that. It is down to three, uh, $39 uh, for that guy. Uh, I'm trying to load the Amazon page right now to to prove what I'm saying, but uh, apparently oh, I'm using up all the internet on my stream. Uh, I don't it's uh it's ridiculous the the price has dropped so much on that and even the sort of dslr form factor uh litro cameras is down to a price of i want to say like 300 dollars. yeah here here we go right here 37.99 right now for that litro lipstick camera this is the eight gig flavor of it 39.95 uh here's an amazon prime warehouse deal of 54 dollars I mean, it is just falling off the cliff. When these first came out, I want to say the price was somewhere in the range of $400. Now, you think Lytro is making the wrong choice, investing all of their eggs in the VR 360-degree basket? I don't think so. But uh, I don't, like you say, the consumer market, uh, I, I never bought into the camera because of multiple things. Number one, uh, you and I talked about the resolution. Uh, initially, the resolution was very small. Uh, and and I, frankly, was bothered by the fact that somebody could change the focus of my figure. I'm a control freak, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to, when I create a photograph, I want to be able to craft it the way I saw or envisioned it. I don't necessarily want somebody else going in after the fact and looking at the focus of the artifact in the background whatever um so i the second part of that was that in order to display those photographs they had to be on the web um you know you could print them but then they lost their impact of being able to refocus and when you used them on the web they had to have a special plug-in in order for their user to see them and so that just limited the hell out of being a, i mean you couldn't put it up on Flickr or any of the popular sites, right? So you just <laughs> cut, off, cut off your entire visibility uh, for these for these uh, photographs. So in the consumer space, I always thought it was a dead item from the first get-go, and for once I was right. <laughs> uh, but uh, their virtual reality product, the thing that you have in the show notes, is... Only $60,000. Only so $60,000. Right. So so they're they're dumping out of the consumer market altogether, and they're aiming it at the producers of virtual reality, right? So they're going to sell a theoretical boatload of these to the creators of virtual reality, uh, but it's not a consumer item. That that's that It's not aimed in that any way, shape, or form. I mean, it's a, an entire production environment. It's not only the camera, but it's all of the software and the computers that go with it. So it's an integrated system to create virtual reality. And, and that makes more sense, I think, uh, especially if you can use it to refocus. If you can do the light field refocusing, which allows, and I don't know how it would work, but if it allows the, the, the viewer of the virtual reality to change the focus from something that's close up to something that's far away that would be pretty cool in virtual reality i think right now most virtual reality stuff 
is omnifocus. Everything's in focus, right? Because yeah. that's the only way you can film it. I don't know. I, so I'm I, looking at these, and I'm, wouldn't it be great to do a comedic thing where, you know, as you change focus, you get some joke in the background? So in the foreground, you know, it's a guy just standing there. And then as you change the focus, maybe like, I don't know, someone's mooning him in the back or you know, something. <laughs> I, I can imagine like there's a way somehow like discovering Lytro and, then, you know, you shoot somebody in the foreground and in the background, something funny or ridiculous is happening. Um, yeah. As far as virtual reality goes, I, I think you're right, Mitch. I think having the ability to focus and post would increase the viability of this for for uh, VR applications. Uh, that said, I kind of, I don't know, when you look around uh, as a, a person with eyes and see the world, I kind of, I know I know if something's really close, the rest of the world looks a little bit out of focus, but naturally everything is sort of in focus. And to me, that almost is what makes uh, virtual reality uh, work is, is having everything in focus. If you have stuff out of focus, it sort of like forces you to look at different things uh, right in front of you or off to the side of you or wherever the focus is set. And your eyes in real life don't necessarily work quite that way. Uh, am I wrong? You're right in that your eye focuses on a narrow area. I mean, if you really sit and think about it, the stuff that's in your peripheral vision is not really in focus. True. So I hate to disagree with you, but I think you're wrong there because I think stuff that is in your periphery is out of focus. I might have to uh, spend some time just staring at the world and seeing (laughs) what is in focus and what is not in focus. So used to looking through a damn camera that you can't see reality anymore. (laughs) All right. Uh, Anyway, virtual reality, it's coming whether you want it or not. Same with 3D and all the other gimmicks. I don't know if this (laughs) one will be a gimmick or not, but we'll find out soon. Speaking of gimmicks, let's talk about this Sony camera here. This is a... uh, this is an offering from Sony, uh, yet to announce pricing, but it is uh, easily labeled. Uh, oh, I don't even know what it's labeled. It's like three US WMCG whatever, but it's basically an A7S Mark II uh, shoved into a tiny GoPro size form factor with some extra features. It's a full frame interchangeable lens, very small, very good low light performance. Looks sort of similar to that uh, security camera from Sony that we talked about a couple of episodes back. No word yet on pricing, but going through the specs, you see pretty much everything that you get out of the A7S Mark II, except I do not see image stabilization in the list. Now, with full-frame cameras like this in GoPro packaged sizes, uh, do, do action cameras stand a chance, Mitch? Well, that's, let's be clear. That's not a GoPro size because it's a full-frame sensor, right? Yeah, I think a full-frame sensor is actually probably close to the size of a GoPro. So maybe, what, like an inch around bigger uh, than a GoPro? It's hard to it's hard to tell. Did you tell I switched the headphones out while you were gone? What's that? I put my old headphones back on. It is pretty <laughs> small looking. It's kind of annoying with those things in your ears to talk, so I switched. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. They're great for listening, but for talking, it's like I hear myself funny. Um 
he does look pretty small with that lens on there. I hadn't really thought about the size of it because I was thinking full frame sensor and it slays me by, by the way, if you look at all of the materials, they talk about this as if it's a brand new revelation in high ISO cameras. I mean, it's, which is really not, it. it's, it's a, not, <laughs> it's the same, same darn sensor they've been using in all their other exactly. cameras. I mean, but their but their literature so far is oh, this is the first high ISO camera, blah blah blah. I'm like, no, it's not. It's your own damn sensor that goes to four hundred nine thousand six hundred. So and that confuses me. Anyway, sidebar there. For um, the record, this is the UMC S three C, a name that just rolls off your tongue. It's easy to remember. Yeah. And very simple. Thanks, Sony, for your continuing efforts to make naming simple. Good job, buddy. Uh, as far as size goes, I'll have to look up the actual dimensions on this. But I have in front of me that uh, really tiny C1 EMZ camera that's a Micro Four Thirds, uh, you know, interchangeable lens GoPro size camera. And when I say GoPro, that one literally is the size of a GoPro. So that's Micro Four Thirds. You figure a full-frame sensor, you're going to double that size. I would say maybe add a case to your GoPro and maybe the little foot on the bottom of your GoPro, and that might be the size of this compared to a GoPro, which still puts it in the action camera range. I don't know, though. We've also seen Blackmagic offering up uh, Micro Four Thirds cameras. You know, they've got their studio camera now. Uh, it just seems like action cameras... If you really want good video and you want it to fit into a tiny package, there are so many more advanced cameras available now to people that uh, I feel like GoPro might be fighting a losing battle here. Yeah, I, I'm kind of agreeing with you on that, especially uh, according to Cinema 5D where you grab this article. It's 125 minutes of 4K video at 60 frames per second. Wow. That's a lot of, and that fits on a 64 gigabyte card. So there must be doing some compression going on there. Uh, but I mean, this would certainly fit nicely on a quadcopter, wouldn't it? Oh, definitely. Uh, you could easily get this onto any kind of uh, gimbal or quadcopter type of application. Uh, you would have to be careful of the size of the lens, though. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you saw, I didn't put it in the show notes, but there was an interesting article and sort of a, a battle between a few sites about the practicality and the sizing of uh, full frame uh, mirrorless bodies. And there are people arguing about how it's not really smaller and not really bigger. Um, the issue with the, the mirrorless bodies is because they changed the flange distance, the sensor and the back of the lens element still have to be the same distance apart. So what you end up with is a skinnier body and longer lenses. And for balancing, especially on like a uh, gimbal or on a quadcopter, uh, that longer lens can throw you off a little bit, uh, you know, because your weight distribution is a little bit different compared to your mounting center point, which is further towards the back. Uh, you can compensate for that by getting a smaller aperture lens, maybe like F4 or something in that range to bring down the size of the lens. But uh, that still is a determinant factor. Um, did you read any of that, Mitch? Because there, there was a big fight back and forth. I think it was uh, some uh, some photographer posted a big long write-up, and then he kind of glazed over a few of the more factual things about the difference between the cameras. <laughs> 
there is a little bit of that that happens, doesn't it? I'm probably guilty of it as well, of blazing over certain things. Uh, I, I continue to, to think that most of these smaller body cameras are definitely niche cameras. They're not, it's not something you're going to slap on a, a, a rig and make a movie with. There's just, there's just not any real reason to do that because they got so many other bodies. Now, the, the only real difference, I think, between something like, the, well, not all, I should, sorry, I shouldn't say the only real difference. This doesn't shoot stills, right? As far as we know, it's, it probably is only a video camera. It's true. Um, and, and that would differentiate it immensely between the A7S, Mark II, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, again, it's, it's a niche camera shooting 4K video, great stuff if you need it to be small. Otherwise, why not get a regular camera? What would be the must-buy price on this? If, uh, if it came out at what price would you just jump oh. on this guy? Uh, well, first of all, I have absolutely no need for this kind of camera for what I do, unless it were, uh, you know, my next replace my little eyesight camera on my iMac and I'm shooting you and I are doing this podcast in 4k or something. Yeah. Bandwidth. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have, I have no need for this. So there was nothing, no price unless it were handed to me on a platter for free that I need something like this. But, uh, if it's more than a thousand dollars, why bother? That's true. I mean, well, I guess full frame action camera, maybe there are some applications for this as far as filmmaking goes that make it really attractive. Um, if you're shooting in a very tight environment, say you're filming in a car, uh, you're trying to set up uh, cars are the go-to one when you need something really small that can be fit into the corner of a, a windshield or something like that. Uh, otherwise, uh, maybe very specific sports applications where you need to get a camera into uh, a small spot in a dugout or, uh, you know, on a player himself or on some sort of moving vehicle like a motorcycle, something like that. I don't know where uh, this would prevail over other cameras because the A7S line is already pretty light, but it does have some remote control features as well as a special plug. So, it's cool. I don't want one, but I like what it has. I like what they're doing with this, and I would love to see more tiny cameras coming out from other manufacturers to give me lots and lots of options for little baby cameras. Now, speaking of little baby cameras, let's transition to uh-huh. the brand new uh, Panasonic offering. This is kind of falling into that retro category that we've been seeing from Olympus. Not quite as over-the-top retro, but this is the GX85. Now, basically, this offers up many of the features that you get in the GX8 in a smaller package. Uh, Looking at these on the left-hand side, you can see a full-size GX8, and on the right side, the GX7, and in the center, the GX85. Uh, This will be priced at about $797, so let's say $800 with the kit, 12 to 32 millimeter f 3.5 to 5.6 lens. Uh, this camera offers up a few interesting things. Uh, first, all the literature on this does say five axis image stabilization, but if you actually check 
their literature closely, you'll find out that there are three axes of image stabilization in the body and two axes relying on IS in the lens itself, which means if you want all of the axes, you're going to have to buy IS-stabilized Panasonic glass to go along with this guy. Now, Mitch, this is tiny. This is cute. It's a very nice-looking form factor. What do you think about the GX85? Uh? <laughs> That's all you got, huh? I couldn't resist. You know, I got my my sounds working this week, so I couldn't couldn't resist. Uh, it's got some incredible features. Uh, the megapixels are sixteen megapixels. That's just not high enough for me. That's a that's a lead in for another story later. <laughs> uh, I I just couldn't resist that one either. It, it shoots at one sixteen thousandth of a second, which is pretty damn high, right? Pretty yeah. astounding. The uh, shooting specs on this are pretty much identical to what you get out of the GH4. Same same sensor, oh. uh, the same shutter speed maximum. Uh, ISO performance, I expect, would be about the same. Uh, your frames per second burst mode is roughly the same. I think it's 11 frames per second on the GH4, and this is 10 frames per second. Uh, oh. a- across the board, I mean, uh, basically what's going on right now is Panasonic is doling out uh, the good stuff from the GH4 to its lower-level lineup. So we're, we saw that in the, the G7. We're seeing this now in the GX. 85. We did see a different sensor in the GX8, which was a 20.1 megapixel sensor as opposed to a 60 megapixel sensor. But predictions are that 24 megapixel is probably the maximum you'll see in an M43 body simply because of the uh, pixel density. So 16 is probably about where it's at. And uh, this to me says that probably at NAB we'll see a GH5 that has in-camera image stabilization, and many of the little extra features that we're seeing on these smaller, lower-priced models. Uh, If a new GH5 comes out, do you think it's going to stomp on the GH4, Mitch, or do you think it's just going to be an iterative update? Uh, Well, we had heard rumors before about the GH5 maybe having a, which would just tromp all over the GH4. (laughs) Um, I guess... I don't know. I always throw I, I, these I, uh, Micro Four Thirds questions at Mitch, and Mitch is not a Micro Four Thirds guy, so he stares at me and then laughs. Um, it's you know, fascinating. I'm reading the specs on this, and I'm, I'm just really fascinated by the and galore, galore of creative filters. I can't talk today. I'm trying to make jokes, and I can't talk. There's nothing worse than opening up the manual and finding out that you have sepia tone as a feature added to your camera. Like, great, woohoo, you know, awesome. Just what I needed to make all my images look a little yellow. Great. They do talk about uh, reduced shutter shock. Is this a problem, really, in micro <laughs> four-thirds cameras? Not really. Shutter causing a problem? It, it's. I'm laughing because I think many of the people that listen to this show, watch this show, and bless you for doing it, uh, are are getting somewhat jaded like you and I. I mean, there are cameras coming out constantly, and you're looking for little tiny nit differences between camera ABC one two three and one two three five, right? I mean, it's just like, okay, where is this going to end? That's absolutely right. Actually, you know, the last probably five cameras from both uh, 
uh, Panasonic and Olympus have sort of been very much clones of their bigger brothers. You know, they'll yeah. subtract things like, oh, guess what? This one doesn't have a headphone jack or guess what? This one doesn't have a microphone input or maybe this one doesn't have clean HDMI out while you're recording to the memory card. You know, these are these are not major changes between the camera lines. And they're kind of hitting every single tier of the market. Uh, you know, the G7, I believe, is down to $500 or $450. Now you have three tiers in between that and the GH4. I mean, how many, <laughs> how many price levels do you really need to cover before you've saturated your own market? And I will admit, I saw this and I was like, ooh, that would be nice for my kit. And then I'm like, wait a minute, what am I thinking? The next GH5 will be here shortly. I will simply buy that and my GH4 will become my backup. There is no need for me to dive into these smaller iterative cameras. I, I have enough cameras. I do not need one that has slightly less features uh, cool. at a good price. So I don't know. I think this is good for the market in general because it gives people a lot of options. But when the options look so similar to each other... Uh, it's really hard to decide what. I, I'm surprised you can keep them all in your head. You're doing amazingly well. Guess Our... what? This has continuous sustained video recording, regardless <laughs> of the NTSC region. So wah, wah, wah. 30 minutes. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that was little known about Panasonic GH4 for quite some time is that uh, you didn't have the 29.9 minute stop, which is a benefit in general for people shooting in, uh, you know, long speeches or any event sort of coverage. Now, you mentioned, Mitch, that 16 megapixels wasn't enough for you. No, what if I, I told mean... you I could get you a camera that shot 100 megapixels? Would you be that, happy with all the pixels? Where can I buy this sucker? I want more megapixels. For only $32,000, you can buy oh, Hasselblad's great new offering, the H6D100. This thing is got some really interesting bits to it, and that really thing that shines for this is it's capable of internal 4K recording. At 16-bit UHD raw in a proprietary format uh, that you have to decode either using Focus 3.0 software from Hasselblad. They do offer a 50-megapixel version of this camera as well for a reduced price of $25,000. Oh. This camera is not meant for me or for you, Mitch. But it, it, it is interesting to watch all the promo videos on this. Uh, there's a gentleman shooting paint into the air and splashing it to show how vivid the images are of this. For those of you not familiar with medium format cameras, uh, here's a little easy to follow chart. This uh, blue line right here is your full frame format. Uh, I believe the Hasselblad fits into the 53.7 millimeter by 40.3 millimeter. So it's in this range, but medium format goes all the way up to, uh, in the case of this diagram here, 62.4 millimeter by 46.8 millimeter sensor. These are huge sensors uh, capable of catching all of the resolution, but is it worth $32,000, Mitch? Ah, well, that's, yeah. Yeah, I, I love the fact that they continuously talk about in their marketing about the fact that their cameras were sent to the moon, okay? Awesome. <laughs> uh, thank you for, and, and thank you for having those cameras on the moon because I love looking at those pictures. Even now, I, I'm just fascinated by moonshot stuff. But 
in reality, uh, 32,000. Did you notice, by the way, the ISO speed on this? Yeah, it's maxing out at 12,800, 12, which is not <laughs> extreme. Which means you got to light the hell out of the, everything you're shooting. Yeah, and right. your uh, maximum shutter speed is one two thousandth, so you can't have anything too bright unless you want to start slapping some NDs on this fella. This is strictly a studio camera, right? Yes, I mean that's why I was teasingly mentioning one sixteen thousand earlier on the four hundred dollar <laughs> camera. Um, I it's got to be great if you're a, a pro and are doing a lot of really high intensity work, uh, maybe billboards and fashion stuff uh, where resolution really matters. <laughs> but good golly, I mean, how many are they going to sell at $32,000 pop? Well, when I first saw this, I thought, oh, well, they're really touting the 4K video factor in this guy. Maybe yeah. that will entice people. And then I got down to the price, and I'm like, wait a minute, 32000 <laughs> You can buy a red setup, or you could buy you know, any number of superior filmmaking tools for that price. Uh, the, the 4K is like, it's kind of a token feature at that point at that price for this particular camera because yeah. it's not really, I don't know. I mean, I guess if you want the most shallow depth of field ever and you're shooting on medium format and you get a really, really wide aperture lens, you could just make the world disappear into bokeh. And th that might be useful for s something. I got nothing for it though. I mean, if I only want the pore on the front of your nose to be in focus and the rest of your face to disappear, uh, that's great. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Uh, as far as the studio camera goes, of course, these are gorgeous. Um, if you were doing anything that needs to be billboard size or cover extremely large walls or huge prints, or you want to be able to crop in the maximum amount and still print some uh, large format images, uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be great. It's going to be the best tool you can get your hands on, but uh, not I, not for us, I don't think. I, I do want to mention, for, for those of you who work at Canon and are listening to this show, and I know there are thousands of you, <laughs> huddled around your monitors up there in New York and in Tokyo, it's probably only 3 a.m. there, and I know you're watching live, but note that this $32,000 professional camera has a touchscreen LCD. So when you guys tell me on the 1DX Mark II that professionals don't want a touchscreen LCD, bowl hockey! <laughs> Hasselblad's doing it. Why can't Canon do it? Sorry. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and the flip out screens, I mean, uh, all those well, things. Flip out. I but... know, but that's uh, the the whole screen system in general has kind of perturbed me over the last uh, couple of years because I got a GH4, started shooting on it, and realized that I don't want a camera that doesn't have a flip out screen. I want every camera to have a flip out screen. And even though I've poo-pooed touchscreens in the past, once you start using them, it's freaking handy. Uh, you yes! know, I'm we like, oh, I need this ISO, and I push the button, and it happens. And, you know, I push the screen, and it happens. And I'm not sitting there dinking around with uh, wheels and so on. Now, I do have muscle memory for my Canon cameras, and that's fine. I'm not going to complain about that too much. But I still, when I see something on the screen, like white balance, I kind of want to just be like, boop, 
and it works, you know, like I want to touch it. I want to make it happen. And I want my screen to face every single angle. And I find myself uh, for years, I was shooting with field monitors everywhere I went. I always carried uh, two field monitors with me, one for each camera. And I, I put them on religiously. But now that I have the GH4 and when I shoot with the GH4, no field monitor at all. Sure, the screen's not that great, but it turns in every freaking direction and it's good enough for me to frame with. And that makes it so much more useful than a huge monitor, even a small monitor, even a, a five-inch monitor on top of my camera. It, that, uh, that takes extra batteries, takes cables, takes connectors, takes points of mounting. It's just not that convenient. I want a 5D Mark IV with a flip-out freaking screen, and I don't want Sony's crappy I look down at you, flip up only, partially flip out screen, because that's ridiculous too. I want it to flip all the way around. I want it to face me. I want it to go up. I want it to go down. I want it to go all the places, not just in the back. Am I wrong? No. I mean, you can shut the show down right now because you just said it. That was, I mean, that, <laughs> that's, that's the truth right there. I mean, I can't say it any better. Uh, one other thing, I've been shooting a lot on the A7S Mark II lately, uh, now that I own a couple as opposed to uh, simply renting them. And the screen on the back of that, I mean, it does move, and that's nice. I do like the fact that I can look down at my screen and face the, the screen upward, but it is an abysmal screen. Uh, the Sony needs to do better on that as well. Like, the 5D Mark III screen, I don't know what the pixel count is between the two different cameras, but the 5D Mark III screen looks way better than the Sony's flip-out screen. And maybe that's a, a factor of the flip-out screen. I doubt it because the GH4 screen doesn't look that doesn't look as abysmal as the Sony screen. I I don't know. I feel like we have screen technology that can do this. And speaking of screen technology, let's move on to the next story and talk about the new very large monitors from Small HD. Uh, we've got a 17-inch, a 24-inch, and a 32-inch HDR extreme brightness monitor set up from Small HD. These are not yet priced, but will be announcing prices in the second quarter of this year. Mitch, what do you think about these rather large, extra bright monitors? Do you think the new hotness for field monitors is ultra bright HDR? Well, it must be because that's what we're getting. Um, we got it from Atomos uh, last week on their week before, whatever, on their new Ninja Purple XYZ. <laughs> The blade um, flame, extreme. Blade flame. <laughs> um, I I don't doubt that color accuracy is important. I mean, if I talk to my good friend Barry Anderson, uh, Shane Hurl, but those guys all drag specific monitors, and I've forgotten which model that they grab um, because they love the color accuracy. They drag those things everywhere in Pelican cases. Uh, and small HD has always been known for, for color accuracy and vibrancy. Uh, it has these new monitors look to be very interesting. Uh, we, like I said, we don't know the pricing. You said it. Uh, it's, it's funny. I laugh because they say pricing will be available in the second quarter. Well, it's April. Yeah, isn't that, um, isn't that the second? Are we in the second quarter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, I, I know how marketing goes. And it's good to see that they're coming out with something large. So can we call them a small HD if they're large? 
I don't know. Good question. They the guy, but they used to have a nine inch monitor. I, I believe the first offering from small HD was like nine or ten inches in size. Yeah. So uh, maybe mm-hmm. they're getting back to their roots with this. Uh, I'm for those of you watching the video. I'm scrolling through uh, the small HD. Uh, press release here and we've got one of them on fire and uh, apparently it's sustaining that uh, you can drive a truck over it so that's a thing apparently you know if I'm out in the field the first thing I want to do is just park a truck on my field monitor Uh, there are some uh, you know uh, nice stand options uh, suitcase sort of design for these where you can pick them up and carry them about Uh, they're showing here a Terra deck being attached via a nice little uh, quarter 20 or not quarter 20, excuse me, cold shoe slide rail on the back, which is, is handy. Uh, here's the suitcase version and, uh, you know, SDI connectors, all the professional stuff that you'd want out of these. They look really nice. And honestly, I don't have a problem with any of small HD's offerings. They do, uh, good stuff and I don't need one of these. I don't really want one of these. Uh, but I could see where, this would be great for an outside production where, you know, you have somebody uh, keeping track of it or clients working on it or, you know, anything else where someone wants to monitor your video remotely while you're shooting. Uh, are you going to lug around a 32-inch screen? I guess would be the weird question for me. But it, I think it depends. Um, like I said, Shane and Barry and, and other folks, always carry around well they have their slackies carry around i'm sorry uh they're, they're interns if only uh, i could afford a person to lug my stuff for me right. for i do free. i do think if you look at the um their new revolutionary accessory rail system uh if you sit and watch it for a second and we're going to see these at nab in a couple of weeks so i'm, I'm really interested to see, but the the ability to simply slide on things like the Teradek, uh but you, where's my cash register? <laughs> um, I don't know exactly how that works, but it looks pretty slick. Uh, and they claim that it saves hours of setup and teardown. Okay, let's exaggerate a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know that it takes an hour or two to set up a monitor, but it looks does does look pretty interesting the way that works and and i i suspect that they're going to make a little additional money by selling the widgets that fit in those sliders now on their system. i did see at uh, nab a um, year or two ago i can't remember but uh i i saw a demonstration of the ultra bright small hd monitors and for a small group they would take you outside uh, in the hot Vegas sun and let you look at the monitor. And it was extremely impressive. And I do have a special place in my heart for the new five inch and seven inch monitors that small HD is making. Although I'm not excited about the big one, I like what they're doing and their stuff is really good. I still, to this day, shoot on a DP six and I have several of them in my collection. And uh, that's one of their products from, you know, what, five years ago, six years ago. And they're still great monitors uh, and extra brightness. You know, that's, that's great. If you can get it, uh, that's awesome. Uh, now if a seven inch monitor sets you back $1,400, a 32 inch monitor, I want to say we're probably talking in the three or four grand range, you know, pretty easily. So don't expect these to be ultra affordable, 
But on the other side of things, you do see monitors uh, like the Ninja Blade Flame, that, or Ninja Flame, Samurai Flame, 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 uh, that we talked about on a previous show that that are in a good price range, $1,200 to $1,600, that are capable of putting out a rather uh, large screen format with lots and lots of light output. And it is interesting to note that the uh, the Flames are putting out 100 and, or 1,500 nits, whereas the small HD monitors are, are 1,000 nits. So the flames are actually a, a bit brighter than the small HD, at least as far as the spec sheets are concerned. Uh, do you think that'll make a difference, Mitch? Um, I, I, I'd like to see these outside, like you were talking about. Um, interesting, just as a, as a side note, the 32-inch goes up to 1,500 nits. Oh, okay. Smaller ones are the the ones that are a thousand nits, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm picking nits here in order to just mention that. But <laughs> you could say you're nits picking. Wah, wah, wah. All right, uh, that was horrible. Right. Let's not uh, let's not turn this into a joke cast. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I don't. I mean, how much do you? And I'm not downplaying the color accuracy because I know it matters a lot to people like Shane to be able to see what it looks like. Uh, but you're going to turn around and colorize. I don't mean that sounds like the uh, Ted Turner colorizing uh, 50s black and white movie. You're going to you're going to color your movies when you get home, right? Yeah, color correction is still a thing that happens quite regularly. Uh, so I think it's, it, it's important to have color accuracy, which is what these are doing. Uh, but I, I suspect for the average Joe, like you and me, we don't care. Yeah. I, I like a good color accurate monitor, but I'm not shooting for, uh, most of the time I'm shooting for uh, DVD distribution. So I don't have to meet any, uh, stringent color criteria in order to get my stuff out the door uh you know i don't have to fall underneath of the ominous rule of the bbc and meet 100 percent of their uh rgb outputs on you know it's not a problem for me i just you know stick it out on the uh you know on the disc send it to the clients no one cares and everybody's happy um if you are working in that f- format and uh you know that is important to you it is nice to have color accurate monitors and to be honest, they look really good. You have a color accurate monitor, you see a difference, but people are shooting, you know, raw images these days, or you have plenty of flexibility in post to adjust however you want. They're shooting uh, very flat images where you almost end up with a gray color and you have to apply a LUT in the monitor to get the color accuracy you want. I mean, right. if you're doing that sort of thing, the practicality of spending an extra grand or two on a monitor to accomplish that perfect a color accurate image might not be for you. Uh, it might be well, better spent on a lens or some other uh, item of better choice. The only thing that I can suggest might be that if you've got a client or a customer that is going to be on set with you, maybe you're filming commercial or something and, and they just can't see past the flat look to be able to have a monitor that gives them a somewhat accurate representation of what it may finally look like certainly is of value. Uh, and it, and it may be worth spending the extra money to get that functionality. Um, so 
anyway, I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, uh, shooting talking heads uh, for corporations, uh, yeah. it's a little ridiculous, but I often set my camera to vivid and <laughs> drop out an HDMI cable and they're like that's the exact look i want i want it to look like this all the way through and you're like okay you know i mean it's a little oversaturated a little little weird looking but uh you know you're happy with it i'm completely happy with it i'm gonna turn this over to you and you can disseminate it to your minions you know like it's if that's what you need to do that's just go ahead and do it but uh i don't know i'm not gonna spend the money on these monitors they look beautiful from the demos um i'm not gonna drag a car over my monitor i'm probably not gonna try and start it on fire or put out a fire with it uh, this is not a fire extinguisher it is a viewing portal for your eyes uh so it's just rugged it's it's aluminum they're telling you that they're they're good for on sets anywhere in the jungle that you need to take them oh wait you can have batteries <laughs> Anyway, all right. On that note, I think we've covered everything in the news, and we've managed to make this show hit the one-hour mark. Is there anything else you want to cover, Mitch? Before we get out of here, I just want to remind people that uh, next not uh, next week's show will be Friday, and then so Saturday, Sunday is the day I arrive at NEB. I think you get there Sunday, so that's the seventeenth, if I remember correctly. Sounds right. NAB is going to be so exciting. We're going to be, I'm going to be on live uh, Teradex booth on the Plan 5D final wrap-up show, which is the last show of the day, which is 5.30 to 6 o'clock Pacific time. So if you can adjust that worldwide, you can see me every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday there, and I'll also be on the Be Terrific show, and I've forgotten exactly what time that's going to be. Uh, so you can check us out. But the main thing is the NAB live blog, which you will find on dslrfilmnoob.com. Slash live blog NAB. I think that's right. Actually, that might not be right. So don't don't uh, just click on the NAB link at the top of the the, the page and you'll find it right there. Uh, Devin's coming with me. <clears throat> so we'll probably be doing some some live broadcasts from the show. Uh, it'll be an exciting week of travel. Um, I also have... I have some shoots this week going on that people, uh, they're too cheap to rent a hotel. They're going to stay at my house. It's like, really? Come on. Uh, They're like, well, you know, it'll save money for everybody. Like, yeah, well, that's great. I I, just, what I want is like four people sleeping on my couch this week. So thanks to that uh, money saving tip. You guys, what's that? I said, I hope they're not listening. Oh, I hope. Yeah. Well, if you're listening, I think you're all jerks. For staying at my place, and I don't care that you hear this because that's what I feel like. Uh, we only have one bathroom. I mean, come on, four people, you know, plus my wife and I getting ready in the morning in one bathroom. That's ridiculous. Charge the rent. Yeah. Well, they were like, hey, may, uh, maybe you could buy a turkey and cook a, a big spread for us when we show up. I'm like, no, this is not this is not catering service from DJ. You know, GTFO, man. Uh, you get your own food, walk down to the somewhere and buy it. I don't uh, – how do I get myself involved in these business? Uh, all right. On that note, guys, we can be found at DSLRFilmNoob.com. My name is DJ, of course, and you can find me on Twitter at DSLRFilmNoob. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. Be sure to write, rate, and subscribe and leave your questions in the 
the YouTube section. Sorry, I didn't get to any of those questions today. There were a couple that I wanted to talk about, but we'll save those for the next show. And of course, uh, scheduling note, Devin is working at three studios right now. So that guy is doing like 18 hour days and you may not see him for a few shows depending on his horribly compressed schedule. So I will keep you posted on that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast.